we are back. Um, I want to point out that uh, that if you haven't had a chance to travel over to the California Museum for History, Women in the Arts, located on uh, O Street, 1020 O Street, uh, I would urge you to do so to take a look at a really remarkably well-preserved copy of our nation's Declaration of Independence. It's a, it's a rather remarkable story. Talk about your, your antiques roadshow moment. Apparently a guy at a, at a, at a garage sale bought a, a frame for like $4 and noticed a piece of paper stuffed in the back of it that turned out to be an actual copy, one of only 25 existing copies of our nation's Declaration of Independence, which, uh, which um, television producer Norman Lear later purchased for $8 million dollars which he's been kind enough to put on display for uh, for your uh, viewing. I urge you to go over to the, the California Museum for History, Women, and the Arts and, and take a look. Uh, what amazed me was the condition of the paper. I mean, it really, really is in good shape. And uh, while you're tooling around in Sacramento, perhaps you're going to go over from Davis across the causeway to spend a little time in downtown Sacramento. Keep in mind that uh, the Sacramento City Council, in its wisdom, voted a few weeks back to remove the existing 45-minute parking time limits on old Sacramento streets and replace them with two-hour limits. Some of them had 45 minutes. Some of them actually had as long as 90 minutes. They decided that it wouldn't be excessive to spend two hours at a parking meter in downtown Sacramento's premier tourist attraction. But do be advised, if you travel to Sacramento and expect to use a parking meter, take a roll of quarters. The uh, city fathers and mothers have decided a long time ago that it would be just it would be just too burdensome to allow people to put in nickels and dimes. So if you don't have quarters, you are screwed. So take a roll with you when you go. Here's an article I wanted to mention that appeared in the Sunday Telegraph in London on May 22nd about the grim situation over there in Iraq, quoting a man named Ali Hamid, who's evidently an Iraqi taxi driver. Um, He explained how desperate the economic situation in Iraq was and how it was fueling a black market in human organs. Quote, I thought about joining the police or army, but that is even more dangerous There were no more options, so I decided to sell my kidney. I'm still a young man, so I want to marry and begin a business. As far as we can tell, that is not an urban legend. That is actually the reality over in Iraq. We probably should check over on uh, Snopes.com. That's really a good good web uh, site for running down urban legends. But uh, I suspect that one's legit. Let's do a couple of science topics from one of our favorites, a New Scientist magazine. Evidently, a study done at McGill University in Montreal notes that uh, although smokers may huff about their rights to indulge their puffing habit, they could be harming those around them more than we thought. Apparently, inhaling passive smoke may physically prime some children to become smoking addicts later in life. The article notes there is a growing body of evidence that secondhand smoke is not only harmful in itself, but that watching peers and parents light up teaches children to become smokers. A study was done on nine-year-olds where they assessed various factors that uh, contributed to, uh, to their lives, and uh, they were followed up on four years later when they averaged 13 years of age. They contacted them and noted that at, by that time, 44% of these children had begun to smoke. 
uh, they started to factor out which might be contributing to this and concluded that uh, one final factor remained as the sole predictor of which children would start smoking as teenagers, the level of cotinine found in their saliva when they were children. This means that the more nicotine a child had absorbed from passive smoking at around the age of nine, the more likely he or she was to become a smoker. I would suggest to you, dear listener, that it would not be a stretch to call uh, uh, smoking around your children a form of child abuse. The same issue notes that animal behaviorists have been trying to assess culture in terms of learning among animals. Uh, They were observing a a killer whale, an orca, uh, apparently in marine world, in uh, marine land in Niagara Falls, Ontario, Canada. Uh, Apparently one of these orcas would spit up a bit of fish onto the side of the tank, and when gulls would come in to grab the fish, the orca would then eat the gull. Pretty soon, the orca was catching three or four gulls a day using this method. Soon afterwards, uh, his half-brother, the whale's younger brother, started doing the same thing. Soon, the brother's mothers were enjoying feathered snacks, as were a six-year-old calf and an older male. There's been a debate about whether uh, some purported examples of cultural transmission of things and animals can be explained by individuals discovering the skill on their own, rather than following another's lead, but in this case of this uh, this gull catching by the orca, the whole process was witnessed from start to finish, and it's quite clear that there's some learning going on and some, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, culture among animals. And in a related story that may have some application to the human field of advertising, where certain peer leaders are uh, known to exhibit uh, behaviors that others in the group then uh, ape, Uh, Among chimpanzees, speaking of apes, they basically taught two groups of chimps two different methods for extracting food from a complicated feeder. One chimp was taught to lift the barrier up, while the other was taught a slightly more efficient poking method. The chimps' group mates were then allowed to watch their respective experts at work. The chimps followed the lead of their own expert chimp. The poker's group preferred the poke. The lifter's group preferred the lift. And even when uh, some lifters learned to poke, the majority reverted to the group's original lifting strategy, even though it wasn't as good for extracting food. So certainly, uh, even among chimpanzees, we have a certain uh, preference for um, um, those who are in the group to which we belong. We have so many more science articles we'd like to do, but we'll do one of our all-science shows perhaps uh, later in the month or in October where we catch up. Let's go out here in the last few minutes we have available to us today with some matters of movies. I have had a chance to see a couple of them in the past week, and I want to give one a thumbs up and a thumbs down. If you haven't seen March of the Penguins yet, by all means, do yourself a favor and take in this most interesting French documentary of how the penguins down in Antarctica make a go of things. The photography is stunning, and, and the behavioral was, was really fascinating. This, this is a real winner. It's getting rave reviews everywhere, and I would say deservedly so. On the other hand, <laughs> I wanted very much to like the movie The Aristocrats, although I was skeptical at first that this one-trick pony of a movie based on uh, comedians reporting uh, on a legendary joke with a very simple setup and a, you know the same punchline in every case, which is The Aristocrats, um, 
The joke is about a guy walking into a, an agent's office pitching a family act. The act consists of unspeakable activities, which comedians may stretch out for some minutes. And, of course, uh, the punchline is always, what do you call this act? The answer, the aristocrats. Um, I, I really, like I say, I really, this movie is taking the people like uh, uh, Paul Reiser, George Carlin, uh, Chris Rock, Harry Shearer, Phyllis Diller, the Smothers Brothers, Fred Willard, people that we really admire and, and basically putting them in this documentary. But the whole idea is how gross can you make the middle part of this joke? And watching all these comedians whom I admire very much just getting you know progressively more gross just simply lacked humor was not funny I sat there not laughing and after 45 minutes sort of consumed with ennui not outraged I wasn't offended by it I was just bored it just wasn't all that damn funny I got up and walked out I would recommend ladies and gentlemen that you not waste your money I think we're going to bounce uh, both those films off our, uh, our special media correspondent, Gary Chu, uh, in the weeks to come, see if he agrees or disagrees. And we'll also talk to Gary about a movie I'm very keen to see, and maybe we'll get even Dr. Andy Jones to talk to us as well. He's a big movie guy about Good Night and Good Luck, a, a labor of love by actor George Clooney, which examines uh, the 1950s confrontation between Edward R. Murrow and Senator Joseph McCarthy. We had a chance to talk on this program, one of our really favorite shows we've ever done, with uh, both Bob Edwards, who wrote a book about Edward R. Murrow, uh, titled Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism, as well as one of the last people that Ed Murrow hired for CBS television and radio, which was the immortal Daniel Shore. We're probably going to replay that show in some uh, some future episode, but we'd point out to you, if you want to hear it, it's available on the web at our website, radioparallax.com. Of course, we were, on, we were on kind of an Edward R. Murrow role back then. We also had uh, Richard C. Hodlin on this program twice, also one of our, one of our really high-water marks, we would say in what we've been able to bring you, the KDVS listener. We would uh, suggest very much that if you have some time on your hands and a computer in front of you, you might want to go and check out what Richard C. Hoddle had had to say. He was another great, great guest. That is it for today's program. Uh, this program was produced, as are all of them, by Mr. Edward McMillan. You should, of course, stay tuned for Todd, who will follow shortly. This has been Radio Parallax, and I've been your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next Thursday at 5. Ah.